Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Well, I have been looking forward to this all week. Walter Cha, my very good friend and the insightful humanistic critic whose work you can and should definitely read at Film Freak Central, returns to the podcast today to discuss all things vintage gothic with me. Walter, thank you so much for being here. It's always an honor and a pleasure to talk about film, art, life, writing, and whatever with you. So it how are you doing? A, <laughs> I, you know, as well as can be expected, I guess. It's such an honor always to be asked. Um, you know, I'm always here for you. And it's, uh, I just, it's something that I look forward to. So thanks for, you know, these little uh, islands in the middle of all of the maelstrom of um, COVID <laughs> and all this other stuff that's going on. So I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Anytime. How's work going lately? um overwhelming there's like yeah. too much to do it seems like you know how it is but i mean a lot of it's just uh my anxiety around it. it's like when i'm not re- literally working on it i'm thinking about it and i'm worried yes. about it so it just seems like a 24-hour day thing and it can be exhausting so you know stuff like this is really nice too because it, it allows me to focus completely on something else for a while even if it's yeah. just an hour it's it's meaningful you know to have those little breaks how about you same. Yeah. And it is good to have those breaks until your friend asks you about your work. And then I just completely derail <laughs> you. No, I'm just kidding. No, but I'm the same way. It's nice to kind of get out of your head and think about something else for a while. So this is always a pleasure. And one of my favorite things about you is just how passionate you are about film, especially when it is something you love. As your longtime readers undoubtedly understand, you have excellent taste. And as we started to discuss movies to go with this very suitably autumn theme, you listed so many that I found myself wishing we had time to watch and talk about all of them, but they'd probably have to clone us at some point because we'd be here for the rest of the year. So while we'll go into the movies, we ultimately selected in a moment and we'll undoubtedly reference several others once we start. And I did find myself watching extra films for fun along the way because you recommended so many great ones. To begin with, why don't you tell us what the gothic genre means to you and what makes these movies within it so compelling? Well, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly why I love it so much, but, you know, it, it, it's probably just Frankenstein, you know, growing up with these um, uh, drafty, damp castles uh, yes. full of monsters and secret rooms, uh, staircases. Those, those, those were always scary to me when I was a kid. And as I grew um, older, they, they kind of maintain this romantic notion in my head of, of, of you know, Europe of 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 Eastern Europe in particular, like Transylvanian stuff. But you know, as I got smarter, you start reading stuff like the Castle of Otranto or the Monk, or um, e- even like when you study Romanticism, you read a lot of Jane Austen. You you read stuff like yeah. North, 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 Northanger Abbey, which hasn't really been as you know popularized as the others because it's kind of a satire, you know, and and, and the heroine is. Um, lives in her mind, you know, this gothic yeah. story. Which odd I, one out. Yeah. yeah, it is. It really is. And then you, you know, I, I, I've always loved Wuthering Heights. I love mm-hmm. it so much, the book, um, just because it's a ghost story. And I didn't know that when I started reading it. 
you know, but then the, uh, the, there, there's a scraping of the window and it's Catherine's dead hand, you know, not yes. at it. But, and it's like, what is, what is this? What am I reading? And you realize <laughs> this history of um, per- perversity, but the more that you read, the more you realize it's also a history of um, female sexual repression yeah, and not, not the women repressing themselves, but rather the society repressing their sexuality mm-hmm. and making of them mad women, if you will, or, or, you know, giving them syndromes, the, the hysteria. The, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it, and, uh, one of the great lines, and I don't remember it verbatim. I'm not one of those lines guys, but in the new, in the new Suspiria, in the Suspiria remake, there's this really remarkable moment where, you know, one of the witches says to the psychiatrist, um, you take a woman's like suffering and make it a syndrome. And and I was like, yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's, that, that, that's a wonderful description of how women are treated in our culture, but also, you know, a wonderful description of the Gothic tradition and literature. Uh, and, and then of course that kind of goes into film and, and all those edit, those great adaptations of those uh, novels. But um, yeah, the idea of women being hysterical, you know, to use yes. a, a terrible antiquated term, sexist mm-hmm. term. And, um, you know, and gaslight is a, is a, is a member of this tradition too. And yeah. all these terms have become so, so relevant in our modern conversation that I felt like, you know, as we were talking about and over the course of months, trying to figure out what we want to talk about next, um, all of a sudden, you know, this both clicked for us, I think, where we said, you know, wait a minute. Yeah. What, what is a horror movie with women, but not a horror movie? Exactly. What, what, well, it's the gothic tradition. It's these gothic films that that have been horror movies for women uh, mm-hmm. forever. You know, to say that women's sexuality is scary—it's noir. It's it's yeah. a you know it's the foundation for so much of the stuff that we are uh, still wrestling with and, and 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 looking at in genre today. Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head, especially this era of filmmaking because it's both romantic, kind of poetic. You mentioned like Wuthering Heights, but then there's also this cross section of horror and also noir in the women's weepy of the 40s. And it's kind of this group of movies. I mean, some of the movies we're talking about go into the 1960s, but this era of filmmaking that's kind of not quite one genre or another, just sort of a blend. And it's really irresistible, I think. So I can't oh, yeah. wait to get into it. Yeah. Well, well you know, he, even the movie like Malignant is is somewhat in the Gothic tradition, I think. And, you know, where you have a mad woman, uh, you know, a woman who is a uh, 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 haunted. And, and, you know, one of the main themes of, of, uh, of Gothic literature and film is the double, the evil double sometimes. And, and you know, Malignant is literally that. Um, and to have this idea about her sexuality and Malignant being repressed uh, by an abusive boyfriend and uh yeah it's it's I, I i was on the verge of giving too much away about malignant but the, the, there's something really beautifully um traditional about okay. a movie that everyone the first thing they say about it is it's bonkers and it is bonkers but there's something really traditional about it and i think it finds its root you know in freud's idea of the uncanny which is related to the gothic all this stuff so you know i don't want to get too eggheady about it but there's a a long tradition of um, of movies that Malignant follows along with, which is one of the reasons I love it, I think. Very cool. And I'm glad you gave away what you did because it made me excited to see Malignant. I wasn't <laughs> sure because I thought it was going to be maybe too gory or I wasn't quite sure where I was going with that. But once you started, it's like, well, Walter gets it. I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's very much about a woman's trauma and a woman being told that she, she she's not doing or feeling the things that she's doing and feeling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's the gothic tradition you know one of our films this 
uh, session is literally explicitly about that. But, you yes. know, I think all of them are in some way about that. Um, and uh, yeah, malignant does that. It's, it might be too gory. It, yeah, that's what I was heard. Yeah, you know, um, that's it, what it, I was worrying about. Yes. Yeah, it's lawless. You know, I don't <laughs> want you to go in there feeling like, oh, it's safe in here. It's really not. It's completely lawless. <laughs> but, um, but the themes that it plays with are really interesting themes. Very cool. And I feel like we've been kind of moving towards this theme for a while, or at least I have over the summer with Adam Naiman. I went to Gene Tierney movies and some of these like Whirlpool. And then I was also looking up like Dragon Wick, which is on YouTube. I don't know if it's available everywhere, but I watched that for the first time. That's very much kind of a play on some of these other ones. Um, and then last week I just recorded like a 90 minute episode with James Urbaniak all about Charles Lawton. So I've been heading this direction. So I couldn't wait to dive in and do a big Gothic episode. This will be very cool. uh, I'm not sure that anybody who was more beautiful than Jean Tierney, that just stuns me whenever you say that, you know, an American film or any film, she's just stunning and tragic too. Am I wrong that she, she, she had a. Mental. nervous breakdown or yes, uh, she, she, did. she did yeah right. she was the one who tragically um basically found out that when she went during world war ii to an event um somebody had sneaked out of quarantine and gave her i believe it was german measles and she Ooh. was pregnant at the time and then her child was born disabled and she found out years later when somebody said like oh i love jean tierney so much you know i came out because um i couldn't wait to meet her and i was in quarantine for german measles and that's that led to it so yes so she had all this guilt that was wrapped up in her fame and so yeah quite a tragic figure um wonderful and black and white in color uh there's a great line about uh, from vincent price where he's talking about in leave her to heaven like i'm glad this one is shot in color for once so when i start losing my mind around gene tierney as i always do in these films they will finally see those eyes and get exactly just how stunning she is and why i'm always going nuts and i love yeah, that well and, and 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 i think something with her too that's always struck me is that tragedy um, you know, in the back of my head, I know know it, and it kind of colors all of her performances for me. Um, after a certain point, she wrote a autobiography that I yes. have that I haven't read, but I think I'll probably do that after our talk today. That's awesome that you mentioned that. Yeah, I can't wait to read it. Um, I couldn't find it in time. Adam actually went and tracked it down at some used bookshop in Canada, and it was like amazing. Yeah, it was the MVP of all things to do as a guest. So it was very cool. I really but, like Adam. Yeah. 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 So I was excited. And then I just tackled, as I said, uh, Charles Lawton in the 30s and a lot of these movies, like Hunchback and some of the Hugos, and just you know, his whole aura and he directs Night of the Hunter. So this is perfect. Yeah. yeah. Lawton is great too. And he, uh, he did so much about with, with like body horror Yes. Uh, before that's a thing, right. Sort of the self-loathing of his shape and form. And when yeah. we talk about, you know, body horror, we can talk a little bit about Hitchcock, which will come up. Oh, yeah. Too. Um, yeah. Absolutely. But anyway, 
Yeah. But for those listening, the films we will primarily be focusing on today include Alfred Hitchcock's 1940 gothic romance, Rebecca, the 1943 adaptation of Jane Eyre, the terrific and often overlooked B noir, My Name is Julia Ross, made two years later, the Charles Lawton directed 1955 classic, The Night of the Hunter, and the 1961 haunting British tale, The Innocence, directed by Jack Clayton. As the genre kind of demands that we get into spoilery territory, proceed with caution if you haven't seen the films, most of which you can find streaming and all you can track down occasionally on TCM or Criterion Channel or on physical media. Kicking things off, I thought it might be best to tackle our first two films together since they both star the wonderful Joan Fontaine as our woman in personal, romantic, and gothic peril. First up, we have the lush Hitchcock adaptation of the classic Daphne du Maurier novel, Rebecca, starring Fontaine as the nameless young second wife of the dashing aristocratic widower, played by Laurence Olivier, himself no stranger to the genre following his famous turn in Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights, which was released one year earlier. In Hitchcock's 1940 film, produced by David O. Selznick, Fontaine finds herself overshadowed at every turn by the memory of Olivier's first elegant wife, Rebecca, who is kept constantly in her mind by Rebecca's devoted, domineering housekeeper, played by Judith Anderson. And after Rebecca, things didn't get much easier for Fontaine's gothic heroine, Jane Eyre, in the Robert Stevenson-directed adaptation of Charlotte Bronte's masterful novel, co-starring another dashing but haunted aristocrat played by Orson Welles, an orphaned young woman who thankfully gets a name this time when Fontaine becomes the governess for Welles's ward, Adele. She finds herself falling in love with his moody Mr. Rochester, who may have some secrets, including a mad wife locked away in his estate of his own. So Walter, two very structurally different works, but two with a lot in common, I think, as well. I would love to hear your thoughts on these great Gothic romances, both of which not only come from the minds of women, but of course also star Joan Fontaine. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, interesting thing about Rebecca, I've always had this theory about Rebecca, you know, and I have so many theories about Hitchcock stuff, but yeah. you know, the, the easy neat knee jerk thing still about Hitchcock is to call him a misogynist, but you know, even the critics that initially floated that concept, you know, early on in um, feminist criticism in the seventies and sixties uh, have kind of walked it back a little bit, you know, Tanya Modleski, especially in a book called um, the, the, the women who knew too much makes a really strong case about this idea that maybe it's the society that he's portraying that's misogynistic and Hitchcock himself is doing a string of women who are actually quite strong, uh, who ultimately are punished by society for being strong. And that's sort of the approach that I've taken, not to excuse Hitchcock for his odd proclivities, but rather to say that, you know, when you look at Hitchcock's filmography, you find a string of very, very strong, powerful women, um, you know, uh, including Rebecca, who never actually appears in the movie you know and and and, oh. and and you know she's like the 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 name above the title she's the title herself but uh she's not in the movie and then you have you know there's no more powerful female character in any movie in the 60s other than mother than than mrs bates she's doesn't really appear doesn't really appear in the movie uh oh very alert. true i like that you know, link yeah right but but you know that you, you you have these women who are so powerful that they are powerful as an idea, 
mm-hmm. you know, beyond like, corporeal power, uh, which his women also do in many of his other films. And, you know, when he was making movies in, in England, of course, he, he did a, um, the man who knew too much, the original version of it. He did, he remade it himself with Doris Day in yeah. 1955. I don't have the dates. Right probably, around there. Yeah. Yeah. James around there. Like, yeah. Much later. Jimmy Stewart, exactly. Uh, but the original is so good. I don't like the remake very much. The original is amazing. And because one of the things that happens in the original is that um, there's sort of a villain crawling around on the rooftops and uh, the 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 police and the husband character they can't can't, can't get him they can't shoot him they can't hit him but the 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 wife is a champion marks um you know marksman and he yeah, hands the true. rifle over to her and she shoots him off the roof so that scene is sort of replicated in, in fury road when max can't hit you know mm-hmm. hit their, their, their pursuers and so he hands it over to uh, furiosa um Hitchcock was doing this in 1934. So there's, you know, anyway, so Rebecca, (laughs) (laughs) it was published in 1938. Um, Hitchcock was a big, was a good friend with her, with her her father, uh, Sir Gerald du Maurier, and would have had access to the book as it was being written in his movie, Young and Innocent in 1937. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Yes. Okay. I love it. It's so good. Yeah, it's a good one. So good. Yeah. Great use of miniature, which, you know, it, by that, I mean, it's really obviously a miniature, but I love it. Um, but there, there is, it opens with a murder of an actress and the way that the struggle happens through, through the course of the room, I think echoes the way that the murder is shot and Rebecca without any actors in it. And my, my pet theory about Rebecca has always been that he never shot the murder sequence showing Rebecca, uh, you know, in a cameo for a couple of reasons. They don't want to show the, you know, the monstrous other, um, you know, because it keeps them more monstrous, right? Yeah. Um, but my other theory is that he felt like he probably already shot it, shot it in Young and Innocent. Um, anyway, Ooh. all right. So Rebecca um, is uh, the first movie he made in the United States after a really kind of startlingly great career in Britain. He, he got the attention of David O. Selznick, who brought him over. He courted him and brought him over on the Queen mm-hmm. Mary. And all the headlines at the time, a lot of them anyway, had little jabs at Hitchcock's weight. Like, you know, the like a giant boat, Queen Mary brings over a giant boat, Alfred Hitchcock. And he yeah. saw all of this stuff and it kind of led to a lot of, you know, his lifelong, always a uh, loathing of his body and his battle with weight, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, was really exacerbated by that first sort of introduction to the United States and Hollywood and Tinseltown and how you have to look a certain way. And he brought all of this over he expected uh you know to be treated the same way that he was treated at galmont at at, at selznick's little um b- boutique studio selznick mm-hmm. international and it wasn't that way selznick had a three thousand word uh set of notes for his first hitchcock's first yes. draft script uh it was really butting heads he hated selznick so much that he uh made the killer and rear window look just like him he dressed yep. him just like him, right? And then in North by Northwest, he has the character character give a business card that says Rot on it, Roger O. Thornhill. And Eve asks, what does the O stand for? And he says, nothing. It stands for nothing. And, of course, David O. Selznick yes. had added the O into his, um, uh, 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 you know, his monogram. Just because it sounded better than just David Selznick. Uh, it meant nothing. He stood for nothing and for mm-hmm. Hitchcock. After Rebecca, they wouldn't work together again, even though Selznick owned Hitchcock, essentially, on contract until 1945 uh, with uh, Spellbound. So he yes. he loaned them out for a series of movies because he just didn't want to deal with Hitchcock anymore and vice versa. And uh, 
anyway, um, I could go on for hours about this, and I have already, I think. But no, Rebecca, and the first American film. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, uh, I love their their whole dynamic too, because in oh, the man. new Criterion for Rebecca, they have a bunch of the the memos that were written between um, Selznick and Hitchcock, and also Val Luton. My yes. favorite is before um, they started working together, uh, like Hitchcock's uh, letter to. David O. Selznick is my dear David, and it ends with with love from your devoted and obedient perspective employee. So it like starts one way, and yes. then oh my god, it gets to the end of this booklet. And I highly recommend if you're a fan of the movie picking up this edition because there's this great just like searing uh, letter from O. Selznick back to Hitchcock about like oh my God, I hate your version of this movie. Essentially, it's so not what we were looking for. And so the kind of, I mean, there's been a lot written about this dynamic and it's all worth reading. But I thought this was a nice little truncated um, Cliff Notes version of the relationship. And I also love what you were saying about this sort of uh, theme going through Hitchcock's work. I also feel like he was trying to understand women and also the minds of women. And I think it's a little too easy to just sort of label him with a misogynist brush as well. When you were bringing up um, women not really appearing in the movie, but kind of an over sense of they're there. I was thinking about my favorite Hitchcock, which is Vertigo, one of my favorite movies of all time, Madeline Elster really isn't in the movie essentially i mean we don't know it's basically the the fake madeline who's this idealized version of this woman even the wife in rear window which you were just mentioning like across grace kelly kind of picks up on you know woman isn't going to go anywhere without her jewelry or handbag she has all these rules that women live by um kind of how in your mind you build up women and also women with women this sense of competition, um, feeling inadequate. Uh, I think this movie is very, very ahead of its time. Of course, it comes from De Maurier and the relationship she had with her husband um, and the women in her life and not feeling equal. So I, I love it. There's a lot yeah. here. Well, and the Mrs. Danvers character is the one that that kind yes. of lingers, I think, <laughs> in, in our imagination so much because she's so evil evil oh my god she's evil but she's, she's also, the worst yes but, but you also get it kind of because she loved rebecca I yeah mean, that's true loved rebecca and resents yeah. this sort of thing and probably resents not being able to be out and be with rebecca mm-hmm. the way that she wants to be with rebecca this whole theme that we'll, we'll talk about today about you know the the gothic being a process of repressing women yep. repressing individuality repressing sexual desire in women um you know they're you meant to be objects for men yeah and they're not allowed to have their own opinions they're not allowed to have their own um wants and their urges and they're not allowed to be that thing and in fact if you have those urges if you become you know beholden to your id in any kind of way you get chained up in somebody's uh uh, cellar And, and so that's Amazing that it happens mm-hmm. in Rebecca uh, with two characters, with not only you know uh, the, the 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 Mrs. Danvers character who acts out and really inappropriately, but also an ex, you know, which we'll, what we'll call the Joan Fontaine character. She's to your point in your introduction. She's not even given a name. No, she's, just she's high. To this yes. rich guy. Yep, she's just this thing for a rich person. And before that, she's a a valid a thing for a rich lady. 
Yeah, a companion, a higher companion. And so she's that throughout the course of her existence until the end of it when she um, stands by her man. And she that's a role that was so successful for her through Rebecca. You know, she got so many plaudits for it that I think she was asked to play that a lot more, you know, unfortunately in her career or fortunately for her, who mm-hmm. am I to judge? But she does that kind of same role again in Jane Eyre, which is interesting because the the uh, the literary Jane Eyre is actually much more barbed and plucky than the the cinematic Jane Eyre, who who allows a lot of things to happen before she stands up for herself. She does; it follows the course of the book. But um, yeah, in the book, she's man. I I I I love those Bronte sisters because they. Yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> You know, they, they were all about something. And, you know, in researching a little bit about the Brontes, I discovered a series of poems that Anne and um, um, Charlotte wrote back and forth uh, called the, the the Gondal Mythos, because they all took place in this magical kingdom that they invented called Gondal. And Interesting. In, yeah, it's a, it's a fictional North Pacific Island. Uh, Emily, it was Emily and Anne, um, and Emily was twelve and Anne was ten, I think, when they were doing this, uh, writing it back and forth. These little poems and stories. None of the stories survived, but the poems did, and they all deal with this woman named Augusta Geraldine Almeida, who is the the the, the, the queen of Gondal and has all of these love affairs and all of these <laughs> intrigues. Never married. She's inspired by Queen Victoria, but she's like she plays women. You know, she plays men like a like an accordion, and there's. As I was, you know, reading some of these poems, and they're really good poems. I'm thinking about Heavenly Creatures, the great Peter Jackson. I was just thinking um, that when you were talking. Yes, right. And Who she also, became a writer. Know, yeah, exactly. Was it yes. Perry? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, Anne Perry. Anne Perry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was like Juliet Hume, I think. And then mm-hmm. uh, anyway, her other her real name. But yes. the two of them were writing this fantasy story back and forth as well. And in in the film, and I don't know if this is true in real in real life. But in the film, they have this sort of um, fear of Orson Welles in the, from the third man. They think Orson Welles is the worst villain that they've ever seen on screen. He's <laughs> disgusting, whatever. You know, and, and of course, Orson Welles plays Rochester, a um, yes. very ambiguous hero of, of Jane Eyre. Just like Lawrence Olivia is very ambiguous and Rebecca as well, like who yeah. are really these demon lovers that these women are have, have forced to be attached to by, mm-hmm. by society. You know, um, I don't want to take away all of their agency. Of course, they have some, but you know, there's a a thing going on here where where women become trapped in yeah. marriage and uh, trapped literally in in rooms and their husbands' houses. It's a very Bluebeard sort of thing, isn't it? Uh, and, it uh, is, yeah. And yeah. this makes an interesting um, sort of link to is it suspicion, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. This would be a, another yeah. Joe Fontaine role. Yes. Right? And another Hitchcock. And, <laughs> another. And, and another ambiguous demon lover in Cary Grant. Mm-hmm. You know, no, nobody understood Cary Grant like um like, like Hitchcock did. You know, he and, knew his darkness and, and yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, even his ro- his ro- romantic phases, you know, his yeah. roles, all those He's a snake. He literally called a snake in his role Friday, right? I mean, there's something That's wrong true. about Cary Grant. He's <laughs> strange. And, you know, um, Hitchcock got that. He understood about J- Jimmy Stewart, his darkness after World yeah. War II. He, mm-hmm. You know, Hitchcock saw into things. And, you know, in addition to, like, working out his feelings about women with Hitchcock, you know, birds, after all, is just a nickname for women for, for, for yep. Hitchcock. 
in addition to that, I also think his movies to a large extent are confessions. Maybe mm-hmm. not, you know, honest Oh, 100%. Like, yes. Yeah. He's like saying, man, I just, I don't know what to do. I have these weird urges. I have these uh, weird power trips that I go on. I'm not a good man. I'm not. And I'm going to make a series of movies about men that are not good and women that are good. Choke to my daughter. Yes. By men. My God, it's a, it's, it, it's, it, you know, it's a Dario Argento level of perversion, you know, yeah. when you do that to your daughter in a movie. So there's, yeah, there's a lot that's going on in Hitchcock that I think belies like an easy read. And Rebecca is mm-hmm. case in point. I mean, has, despite all of the, you know, pressure that Sozak was putting on him. And I think some of it was actually good pressure for Hitchcock. Hitchcock was really good with guardrails, I think. But, you know, in, in spite of all of that, or because of all of that, he really developed into a different filmmaker. The movies mm-hmm. that he makes in the early half of his American career, and especially the late half of his American career, are completely different than the movies that he made in his British career. Now, there are hints of what he would become in the British uh, uh, stuff, but, but you know, he doesn't come into full flower until probably the late forties in the United States of truly the Hitchcock that we think about when we think about Hitchcock, but you know, Rebecca is just endlessly beautiful, endlessly lush and sexy. It's just, yep. you know, and, and not between Joan Fontaine and Lawrence Olivier. I think they don't really have any chemistry at all, but no, I think not at all. Be- between Mrs. Danvers and the ghost of, you know, yeah. be- between Mrs. Danvers and the ghost of Rebecca, mm-hmm. you know, her touching the dresses, feeling the curtains. And um, it's, you know, and that's another thing. It got you got Hitchcock actually put on the FBI watch list um, because he always had this really intense sympathy for queer relationships. Yeah, uh, you know, Stranger on a Train, of course, and Rope, and you know, the, it, it, it's like he, you know, he he ticked so many boxes there that he actually got on you know Jager Hoover's um, watch list for that and for other reasons for knowing about the atomic bomb somehow. It was just an accident, but. Um, yeah. <laughs> Rebecca, uh, what a great way to start a conversation about the Gothic in film. Very much. And you touched on Olivier's character versus um, the Orson Welles. I feel like the Orson Welles character has more spine, of course, uh, playing Mr. Rochester, whereas Olivier is very spineless. Like he seems to be this dashing figure, but he himself is pretty ambiguous, pretty aloof. Like he's just this man who takes her out of one position and puts her in another role but then we don't know that much about him. We actually learn more about Rebecca than we do about Olivier. He has these flashes of anger that we see, or they're referenced a little bit, but that's just kind of there. It's a huge contrast between talking about this period of Hitchcock, of course, one of my favorites that I remember being scared of as a girl, but now as an adult, it's like one of my new favorite Hitchcocks is Shadow of a Doubt which is the extreme, uh, a man who hates women and is dealing with women. In this one, you just have Olivier being like um, kind of hurt from his relationship. We don't know why she misreads it. She thinks he's still just madly in love with this woman, but there's a real rage underneath that we get later. Um, Yeah, it's an interesting role, of course, coming off of him playing um, Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights. But I think you talk about Rebecca and you can't not talk about Anderson as Mrs. Danvers, because I think she might be after maybe Norman Bates, probably the most. And then 
of course, uh, Joseph Cotton in Shadow of a Doubt, like the most evil characters that Hitchcock, I think, has ever created. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, Shadow of a Doubt was also Hitchcock's favorite movie. You know, it's it's, it's also my favorite of you know, Hitchcock's movies. I don't think it's his best movie. It's my favorite. Mm-hmm. movie uh, of his and, and 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 it has to do with Teresa Wright kind of because oh I, amazing you know yeah. I had a crush on Teresa Wright since I was like, four <laughs> years old but um but she's amazing in it and and the idea of doubling also makes the subgothic romance shadow of a doubt in, in some way between the Teresa Wright the little Charlie character and the older Charlie character played by Joseph yep. Cotton the yeah. serial killer that you're talking about they love each other and they're paired with each other throughout the course of the film yep. the way that they're introduced lying in bed but opposite, you know, sort of photo yes. flip, um, uh, um, mirror flip to one another. The they're 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 you know he's chased by a double of the cops. He's you know there there's all this stuff going on. And Shadow of the Doubt, I think, was the, his most tender film in terms of an older woman character, which we'll find yeah. in a lot of gothic romances as well. But the mother character played by Patricia Calling in that film is um, really beautifully and tenderly written. It was right around the time that Hitchcock's mother died. And so oh, sort of a tribute to his, uh, his mother. Yeah. Um, whom he loved terribly and he was separate from because of the, the war he wasn't, yes. you know, he couldn't fly back to see her as, as he would have liked. And he was also wounded at the time around shadow of a doubt by all of these accusations by the British press of him abandoning his, the, you know, mother England in the middle of the, of, of the blitz. So, you know, there's so much sadness about shadow of a doubt, uh, around the mother character and around the betrayal essentially by, uh, you know, hyper masculine guy, uh, uh, you know, uh, a black widow uh, in man form who goes around stealing money from rich widows and strangling them and calling them pigs and stuff. And it's yeah. uh, I, I can see why that's terrifying for a young woman. It's terrifying for me for free. Oh, man. yeah. 100%. Um, but, you know, again, another example of Hitchcock understanding the real vileness of men, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially in, in regards to the wielding of sex as a weapon against women and and while repressing sexuality in women that they repress. But, you know, you talk about the looseness and the malleability of the Lawrence Olivier character. He strikes me always in the the back of my head as I'm watching it as sort of a proto dry run for uh, Norman Bates, who is, is, is also very weak and very much, you know, boy's best friend is his mother. And yeah, yeah, I'm going to stay home and run the (laughs) business. You know, he's a, he's like a really good boy. He really is just like, Olivier's, you know, is 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 a really good boy in a way. He's the, mm-hmm. you know, he, he's what he's supposed to be. And then he runs up against Rebecca, and just like Norman, kill has to kill her, um, has to suppress her, and then becomes haunted by the by her ghost, um, which is this sort of melange of guilt and violence and resentment. Um, mm-hmm. And his own sort of like, and you, we see it really come out with Mr. Rochester, who's the prototype for this, but who really resents not being able to get laid again because his first wife turned out yeah. to be nuts, quote yes. unquote, according to him, right? And so, you know, he's blaming his own like inability, just like Bonnie and Clyde. He, he, he's blaming his impotence on a woman and mm-hmm. it causes violence. So, yeah. I'm I'm out of breath talking about this, Jan. It's a breathless yes. genre. <laughs> I know so, we're bringing but, up a lot here. Yeah, I but, know we're churning uh, up all this terrible stuff. But yes, but but, Jane but this Eyre, this oh Jane Eyre. Yeah, yeah. You start this time. Tell me about Jane Eyre. Okay, this was actually the first version of the book that I ever saw as a girl. Completely just captured my imagination. Totally in love with it. 
Um, and it was funny because it was around the time I saw like Citizen Kane and Third Man. So it was a different side of Orson Welles. It was like, wow, you know, I mean, he'd been dashing and handsome in other movies, but it was very overwhelming. Um, like, this is the same guy. I remember that blowing my mind. It's a wonderful one. I always say uh, I love Jane Austen's books. I mean, they're probably like the favorites or the ones you reread or the adaptations you watch the most. But let's face it, um, Jane Eyre is a much better book. I mean, just the writing level. And I encourage everyone listening to go ahead and pick these books up, especially um, Jane Eyre. I have not read Rebecca by DeMaurier. I need to. So that's, <laughs> I need to remedy that. But also pick up Wuthering Heights, which is an amazing book as well. No knock on Jane Austen, who I love very much, but hard to translate these effectively, these um, great voiceovers or these first person pers perspectives into film. I think um, this is probably not the best adaptation of Jane Eyre. I think as an adult, I would probably say it was that miniseries with Ruth Wilson that I loved. That has been my favorite. It's a little more feminist, a little more bold in places, but I just adore it. But this is, again, probably the one that I watch the most. It's beautiful. It's gothic. There's something so dark and twisted about it. Very sinister, just like Manderley. Um, in Rebecca, we have the house here and just, oh, it's overwhelming. It's great. It's one of those wonderful, if it's dark and stormy, you want to put on Jane Eyre, you want to put on Wuthering Heights and this is a wonderful version of it. Yeah. It really is beautiful. I, you know, and, and it, it, you know, it lacks the qualities that you, you mentioned that it lacks, you know, including a very strong protagonist in Jane, you know, the, yeah. the movie was taken over completely by Orson Welles as so mm -hmm. many were, you know, obviously, but you know, this was one, one of the many projects that Wells took on after he got dumped from RKO, uh, you know, for uh, bankrupting them, essentially. And you you mentioned, you know, Val Luton working on Rebecca. He also worked on Gone with the Wind. He was one of David O. Selznick's protégés. And, Ar you know, Selznick, of course, started at RKO. He still had connections there. And when RKO was out looking for someone to run their horror division, they asked Selznick. And Selznick was like, yeah, I got this guy, Val. He shot some second unit on Tale of Two Cities. Great story guy. He knows how to get things done on a budget. Hire him. So Val Luton jumped over there. Uh, meanwhile, Wells jumps back over here to do uh, sort of piecemeal work. He got paid as much to do Jane Eyre as he got paid for all of Citizen Kane, I think, like a hundred thousand wow. dollars. And it's like these little roles that he used to sort of keep funding his stuff. He made a noir not long after this called The Stranger with Edgar G. Robinson. I'm sure you've seen that. Yes. Um, yeah. So good. So good. Mm -hmm. But he would really like to play villains, and he really liked for each of his villains to have a different nose for them. He hated his nose. You know, so if you notice the nose. I didn't know that. That's one, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. He thought it was a pixie child's nose. Um, his, his nose, it is cute. It's an adorable nose. Um, but he, uh, he, he, he hated it. You know, of course it, it reaches its apotheosis. If you will, in touch of evil where he's un almost unrecognizable because his nose he is, is. Like, fantastic. But, Brilliant um, and, film, but yeah. oh my god so good except for the charlton Heston thing but still so good yeah yeah <laughs> but uh but in this movie yeah he put he puts on a different nose and i think it's one of the great nose his one of his great noses but uh yeah um the gothic nature of this movie the the feeling of it the look of it is extraordinary it's so mm -hmm. noir it's so um it really is it's beautiful yeah yeah. Oh my God. And just like in Rebecca, you never see um, the wife. 
the monster. Uh, you see shadows of her. Yeah, you, you hear, hear the her, laughter. Mm-hmm. But you never see her. You know, you see the result of her, too. You know, all of these movies influenced, I think, the way that Jonathan Demme shot uh, Hannibal Lecter first in Sounds of the Lambs. He, you know, he doesn't appear to, like, like 30 minutes into the film, something like that, you know, really late into the movie. And the whole movie has been building up to this moment where you see him and then you walk into this dungeon, this rock stone dungeon. Where are you now? You know, you walk into this place where it's like a 14th century Gothic mansion, right? And you go down this long row of of screaming bedlam asylum uh, um, inmates to finally get to uh, the monster. And and they do show them, of course, in South of the Lambs, but, you know, they make that choice not to show them either in Rebecca nor in in, in, in in Jane Eyre, you never see the monster, uh, which is thrilling if you're, you know, a, a into reading film as texts where you say, what is it about this unseen yeah, other force? Other, yes. yeah. Yes. What is the force that influences the whole film? What yes. is this? I know. You know and and, and it, it, it's, it's the female nature as understood by men which is to say not understood by men so this little looming threat of the female is what is destroying the men in this movie is making them weak and ineffectual and liars you know and impotent like in and and um and and rebecca and in this one making him really kind of a bully he's a bad guy rochester mm-hmm. is and in the yep. book you eventually you get sort of hints at his kindness mm-hmm. start, it's like beauty and the beast right he starts making gestures like leaving like things and gifts and whatever he kind of becomes less of this monster we begin to understand why jane would be with him not yeah. so in the film you know he's always a bully and even though he knows that jane's in love with him he carries on these flirtations with these rich society in front women. of her it kills in you front yes. of her. and oh. she keeps trying to quit saying uh, could you give me a reference? Because you're going to be yeah. married to this, and I he's just uh, like with to... her. Yeah, exactly. He's he's yes. terrible. It's sort of the vicious, um, uh, emotional gaslighting kind of abuse and gaslight. Of course, you know the, there were two versions of that too. I'm sure you know. There's the 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 one in, from Europe from 1940, directed by a guy named Thorin Dickinson, is amazing it stars anton walbrook it's amazing you know anton walbrook of course from the red shoes plays this sort of obsessive sexually obsessive man perfectly he kept doing it um but uh uh he's so amazing in the original gaslight uh and mgm when they wanted to remake gaslight with ingrid bergman of course and george cukor they demanded that the studio that they're buying it from in, in london destroy every print of it every exhibition print and every negative and they almost got away with it but the editor the director conspired and they and they had a fine grain print struck of it and hidden at at the bfi so that mgm couldn't get their hands on it because they tried to destroy the movie completely they tried to vanish um amazing but but the original is better but anyway this whole (laughs) idea about gaslight uh, you know evokes this idea of what these men are trying to do uh suppress women Mm-hmm. Tell them that they don't feel what they feel. Tell them they don't want what they want. Tell them they don't get the same kind of things that men should get and, and shouldn't want it and don't want it. In fact, you don't really want that, do you? Freedom and your own banking account. You don't want that. <laughs> you know, life's easier without it. So, you know, that's all part of this Gothic tradition. And, and Jane, Jane Eyre, though it's missing all of this, things that we wish that, you know, are in the book and are in other adaptations of it, 
it does give us this overwhelming sense of oppression. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, when, when I, I watch it, I feel like my, my ceiling's lower somehow, you know, it's such a yes. closed in space and it's uh very claustrophobic and very claustrophobic and really just, beautiful. really no. just beautiful. And you, you were know, bringing and, up um, to, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 no. I was just going to say that you mentioned vertigo and there's like, you know, elements of that here and also in our next film my name is julia ross but you know there's these echoes that keep coming through it and 1943 was the same year that uh, val luton produced movie with uh, directed by Jacques turner came out called i walked with a zombie That's which right. is yes. another you know adaptation of jane Eyre, of jane Eyre with colonial uh, ist Ooh. overtones um it's a really beautiful film as well oppressive and dark and the irony of i walked with a zombie is that the people who would love it most then and now don't see it because of the title mm. it's actually an adaptation kind of a faithful one in theme anyway of jane Eyre. fascinating i like that take well you were bringing <laughs> up um the late into the picture introductions or this uh, of the monster or the other and of course for orson wells that goes back to the third man he comes in he's a larger than life figure that pops up in the last chunk of the film and uh, he was known to have called that like the ultimate star part because they talk about me for most of the movie and then I appear. And so you can see some of these leading towards um, the movies that we're talking about today. Also with Orson Welles around the time that they were working on Rebecca, the film Orson and Mercury theater put out a one hour version of Rebecca. Um, and David O. Selznick and one of his nasty grams to Hitchcock was, you know, pointing out like, well, your adaptation isn't faithful, but Orson Welles, just in one hour reading word for word, these sections of uh, Du Maurier's book did a much better job and kind of, you know, tying in this um, shame on you, Orson Welles is better thing to Hitchcock. And so these movies kind of do lead into each other. They should be watched. Uh, you could have yourself quite a marathon. Another um, link between Rebecca and Jane Eyre and a lot of these Gothic films is the destruction of the estate at the end or a fire. There's, you know, sexuality associated with fire, of course. And so there's this haunted estate, as you were saying, the ceilings get lower or you feel very claustrophobic or doomed or it's a great dark and stormy night set piece and then at the end to break free or to try to reckon with um the prison walls as you were likening them to sometimes fires break out so yeah these do go together hand in hand well yeah and and you know bernard herman hitchcock's great uh, oh, um, yes. um you, you know a c- composer for for his last for his late American career. Um, he uh, did the score for this Jane Eyre for, mm-hmm. for this. Uh, uh, it was a Robert Stevenson directed this one, um, um, Jane Eyre. And he used, you know, he also uh, did the score for R- Rebecca, the, mm-hmm. the, that Rebecca that you're talking about with Orson Welles for the Mercury theater company. He and Welles oh, were cool. close. Of course, Herman did the score for uh, citizen Kane as well. And, you know, so the, those all all were tied up together, and you know, tragically, the uh, the print of of that Rebecca was destroyed by Walls himself when he was going back and listening to it for uh, a cues for some performance or something. From he liked what he sounded like, mm-hmm. he destroyed it. It was on an acetate print, and so that's kind of lost. But you know, but anyway, yeah. To your point, there it was a 
really interesting and small kind of community that was working on all of these movies. They, they were all about, you know, same kind of stuff. John Houseman, of course, of the Mercury Theater was one of the uh, credited screenwriters for this Jane Eyre. Um, I think he wanted his name taken off of it because he didn't like how it turned out. But uh, oh, yeah. fascinating. And, and also the philosopher Aldous Huxley is one of the screenwriters. Yes. Which is yep. very strange to me, but he talked a lot about, you know, the uncanny and, and doors of perception and stuff. And so that makes sense to me, I guess. Um, anyway, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff. And if people really want to dig into modern gothic romances, we talked about Malignant, the new Jane Campion, Power of the Dog, is very much a gothic. Yes. It's very much a gothic horror, or gothic romance as well. Yeah, can't wait. And you brought up the Mercury Theater on the Criterion disc. They have three different radio versions of Rebecca available for you to hear. And one of them is that Mercury Theater Orson Welles. So you can kind of dive in and hopefully hear um, Bernard uh, Herman's score as well. But we should probably move on to our next one because we could do an entire episode or really like an entire season essentially on Hitchcock because there's so much here or Orson Welles. These are great figures. But next up, we have a film that immediately made us psyched to do this episode because it's one, unfortunately, that not enough people seem to know about because it is hard to find. It only streams occasionally on Criterion Channel or TCM, and it's essentially only available in the States as an Arrow Academy Blu-ray release and quite a beautiful transfer. The film we're talking about here is the 1945 gothic noir My Name is Julia Ross from director Joseph H. Lewis, starring Nina Folk, uh, Dame May Whitty, and George McCready, based on the 1941 novel The Woman in Red by Anthony Gilbert and later remade in the 1980s as Dead of Winter with Mary Steenburgen. The film finds the London-based Julia Ross answering an ad from a new employment agency where she's hired to be a live-in personal secretary for Whitty's Mrs. Hughes. The job interview is a curious one. Do you have any living relatives? Are you involved with a young man? It's basically a questionnaire of, if I abducted you right now, would anyone care? And sure enough, she is held captive against her will, taken to Cornwall and gaslit into trying to make her believe she's the wife of Mrs. Hughes. Hughes's violent son, Ralph, played by George McCready, a total nail biter. I only discovered it a few years ago, but I was so impressed by its efficiency and audacity that I couldn't wait to hear you tell us more about My Name is Julia Ross. God, all hail the one hour film, by the way. It's like I know, a, just 65 minutes. Come on. Perfect. <laughs> and there's so much in it. And I love, you know, the setup because the setup speaks and predicts, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the innocence that, that we'll talk about as well, where there's been a string of people who have uh, um, kind of crapped out of this job that she wants so badly, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that should be your first hint, you know, especially now that we're in the final stages of capitalism that, that <laughs> you, uh, that it One should be included yes. to you. Yeah. Well, it, capitalism is actually doing fine. I think that's the big <laughs> understanding. Capitalism's working, but um, this is the goal. Of capitalism is to destroy people. But yeah. if you have a really high turnover at a job that you really want, take that as a red flag, you guys. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love when she's being kind of asked those questions where she says, "No, no, no, I'm completely alone." And this yeah. idea of isolating women and stuff in the Gothic is such, such, such a key point that these women are forced to become resourceful forced to become these things because there's no one that will believe her there's no one that will help her you know, know throughout the course of this amazing film she tries all of these gambits to escape 
you know, she tries writing these things and slipping notes and, and, and leaving messages and symbols and signs and, and, and putting up smoke signals, all of this stuff, you know, it's really great for a thriller, but it's also great thematically when we talk about how, you know, women in abusive relationships or women being stalked or women, whatever may give you signs may give you things and warnings. And, you know, there, there's mm-hmm. this thing on zoom where you make a certain hand signal, which shows that, you know, uh, you're not safe, that there, that you do need help that someone needs to call. And it's, tragic for us as a species that that's necessary but here's yeah. julia ross that sort of dramatizes that says like look nobody's listening to her and you know just like a slasher film right by the end of it you have an audience full of men who are empathizing entirely with the woman with the young yeah, woman that's the magical girl. thing especially. oh my god it's so great it's so great it's that whole men women and chainsaws idea that carol clover sort of put out the first time i read it anyway this idea that you know, we call this genre misogynistic, but it's the only genre I can think of where a bunch of prepubescent boys or pubescent boys are cheering and hollering for the virgin final girl. Mm-hmm. And so here's, you know, Julia Ross, who's not a virgin, I don't think, but, you know, here's, yeah. she's, she's innocent. She's the innocent. She um, is not who uh, everyone says that she is. She's being gaslit to believe it. And the expectation is that she will ultimately believe it. And it's um, astonishing. It's actually kind of an astonishing movie, especially I think more so because it's so hard to see. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, how how many of these are there? How mm-hmm. many of these little gems am I going to be? You know, I, I I'm I'm well into my dotage now, quite elderly. How can I how can no. I keep finding new movies like this? You know, it's, yeah. it's it's both exciting and humbling. You're like, there's never going to be enough time to mm-hmm. see the movie that you want to see. But yeah, again, another gothic thing. She kind of taken away to a manor on a cliffside. Yeah. One of the great, you know, beach deaths of all time. I mean, that guy really went for it. You know, I know. Oh my gosh. I'm pretty sure he's actually hurt, but um, it's so short. It's so brutal. And it's like, it's the whole movies like this, right? Where it's like you, you get a setup and then she's in trouble and her ways of trying to get out are being thwarted. The evil older lady, which is also a a, 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 a fixture in these films, um, is the mastermind in this one, uh, played Mm -hmm. by Dame May Whitty, right? Who played a similar role in Suspicion, who, you know, she's the mother of the Cary Grant character, I think, and says something that he overhears and makes him angry, and therefore he captures Joan Fontaine in that movie, actually. She says, I'm afraid he'll never get married. He's like, oh, I'll show you, mother. And yes. he goes, and <laughs> um, which is not a great union for Joan anyway. But yeah, Dame May Whitty plays that character in both of these films, and much more so Julia Ross. She's the criminal mastermind who wants your dear darling boy to have what he wants, which is a girl. Yes, he he's a girl, he's going to have her. She pulls those strings. Yeah. It's gross. It's gross. It, but she's like the character that, Hitch- that Hitchcock loves. So, you know, the uh, mother um, in, in uh, Psycho. Notorious. Oh, the mother Notorious. Strange on a Train, right? Yeah. Who's, who's really funny, but doesn't see that Bruno is, is, is a murderer. Um, that, that These monstrous mother figures, these unreliable mother figures that have mm-hmm. their culmination, of course, in, in, in Mrs. Bates. But um, the, there's that in Julia Ross. There's uh, a resourceful and um, brilliant protagonist that we can root for without feeling like why are you going into the basement you know she doesn't yes. do anything. 
(laughs) She tries things that you would try. That's one of the things I love about it. It's so harrowing. It's so stressful. I almost think, okay, the end, it goes a little too quickly with some of the plot machinations. I will say that. But otherwise, 65 minutes, it's almost all you can take because it is just so stressful for the whole movie. I mean, you are 100% with this woman. Like, wait a minute. Let's try to write that. Let's crumple it up. Let's throw it over. Is that how far you can throw it? You know, everything (laughs) you think of, um, she tries. The other thing I love about it is you pointed out, of course, the illusions with um, abusive relationships. And one of the, you know, hallmarks is isolating you from your friends or something like that. And she's like literally isolated in Cornwall. But the other thing that I was watching it as somebody with like a genetic condition and chronic issues who didn't really get diagnosed till age 40 um, is for years, you know, I'd go to the hospital and it'd be like, Hey, yeah, I'm swelling up or I'm having trouble breathing. Or they'd look at my heart rate. Like, why is your heart 145 beats a minute? Are you really stressed right now? And it's no, you almost have to think about while you're in this state of stress, um, how am I representing myself right now? And so you become, as they say in Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which is one of my favorite movies of all time, that line about you're very aware of people looking at you because that is essentially what it's like to be a woman. But first and foremost, in these gothic films, like horrible things are happening to these women, but in, you can't like, you know, just start screaming and otherwise you'll be labeled a hysteric. So you almost have to think, okay, I'm in trouble right now, but how is this coming across? Like, how can I get people to believe me or uh, be on my side? So watching this movie from that standpoint of like having memories of going to the hospital and you're like, did did your boyfriend just break up with you? Like I was literally asked that one, stuff like that. You know, watching this, you're like, oh my God. So you know, you can see it from the abusive standpoint, you can see it as a disabled or somebody um, with these issues, see it from a lot of perspectives. And I think men can identify too, as well. I mean, it's a great thing, exactly what you were saying, is you're going to identify in a safe place, you're in your house with these characters who are going through something. And that's the thing about horror, it brings catharsis. And this is one of those great versions of that. Yeah, you know, you're. You know, it's, it's funny. I was thinking as you were talking, like when I was a younger man, I realized that as I was when I was fighting and stuff that fights would sometimes turn when I was with a you know and a r- 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 romantic fights would turn when I started crying. Then all of a sudden, my tears are something that needs to be considered that oh, are an actual. Yep. You know, whereas if a woman cries during a fight, yeah, you do that. You know, yeah. let's keep. As soon as I cry. Now there's something serious going on. I was like, okay, what's going on? Let's reset. Let's whatever. And that should not be all right. But that's the way that we're kind of programmed in the society. And that's what these films and so many of these movies have women creators, right? Like the books or the sources or whatever. And always, almost always have women heroes that this is a real expression of that pain of where, you know, society views your pain as Mm -hmm. illegitimate, as just sort of a, a feature rather than an aberration. Like, you know, women are emotional and we say all that, even though, even when we watch, you know, freaking alcoholic Supreme Court justices weep on the stand. We don't see that as weakness. We see that as a man passionate and but a woman cries, not fit to lead. And so, you know, again, yeah, it's so poignant when we look at these gothics where we're like, these women are in pain. These Mm. women are right nobody listens to them. Nobody will help them. The police traditionally in this, the constabulary, they come in at the very end when all of the shooting is done. 
And yeah. they don't save anybody. Nobody can help <laughs> these women. They can only help themselves. They're and, on you know, cleanup. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the thing about Vertigo is um, it, it, the, the relationship of this film to Vertigo is like when she throws her gown out the window to confuse Mm-hmm. you know her tormentor it's it's the same as you know madeline throwing well the fake madeline throwing you know judy throwing the mannequin off of the top of you know the the or the body actually it's a body it's not a mannequin the the body off the the uh, tower in, in vertigo to confuse yeah. the pursuer who turns out to be kind of a demon pursuer as well and so you know there there there's these things that women have to do to throw people off the scent that's like you're giving a fake note phone number at a bar you know, yes. you express interest for a while and then you're like, here you go. Thanks, buddy. And, you know, all these things that you have to do, you, you can't walk directly back to your house. You can't, you no. know, go back to your car by yourself. You can't. It's like these things that men never, ever think about. We're forced to think about now, consider when yeah. we're watching the gothic romance. Like, how do you get out of the clutches of this evil man, this evil mama's boy? Essentially. Yes. You know, know, this incel. How do we get out of the clutches <laughs> of this guy? How do we do that? This guy who's still living in his mother's basement. How do we get away from this person that's so full of hate and frustration? Yeah. Oh, no, I think you hit the nail on the head. And that's a fascinating thing, especially uh, of the films you were saying, is they are sort of pushed on by these maternal figures. So it's kind of the battles that women play out sometimes where your your inner misogyny kind of comes to a head in some of these films. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. it's it's so gross, you know, all the yeah. women in, the, in these movies. And, you know, mm-hmm. th- it happens again in our next film. It, um, and it happens again in, in our next film and it's like it's just it's repeated. repeating yes yep so so yeah. so ladies you know mama's boy that's a red flag yeah <laughs> it's good that they like their mothers but you can like your mother and you know then it's the wait a minute mom said something yeah. so now i have to act a certain way with you red flag exactly yeah there, there, there's a line here <laughs> we, should cross. we should never cross yes well, next up, we have two seminal Gothic classics and incidentally, also two of the greatest horror films ever made. In first, the 1955 Charles Lawton directed masterpiece, The Night of the Hunter, starring Robert Mitchum as a twisted, misogynistic, bluebeard preacher who marries and kills unsuspecting widow Shelley Winters and then goes after her two children in hot pursuit of the location of the $10,000 that their father had stolen in a robbery before he was executed in jail. The only one to protect these kids, Lillian Gish, as a no-nonsense, tough old senior with a shotgun to look after the neglected children of Lincoln-era America. And speaking of the children, we have two more we meet in director Jack Clayton's spooky, stunningly photographed 1961 paranormal gothic work of psychosexual horror, The Innocents, when Deborah Carr applies for her first job as a governess and is employed by the disinterested wealthy uncle bachelor of the kids played by Michael Redgrave. But in the film adapted by William Archibald, Truman Capote and John Mortimer and based upon Henry James's The Turn of the Screw, Carr is no Jane Eyre and Redgrave is no Mr. Rochester. This isn't a romance, but a mysterious film, oft copied and very influential, that finds Kerr questioning if she's losing her mind or if these children and the estate she's residing in is possessed or haunted. Obviously, there's a lot to unpack with these films, but Considering both are total classics and also involve children being thrust into the darkness of the world, I'd love to hear you go into them. Well, I mean, they both have kid pairs, which yeah. is fascinating to me. <laughs> um, and, and it, but, you know, 
all-time classics movies that you know your 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 listeners are probably more familiar with and julia ross certainly yeah. or, the jane, or the 1943 jane jane Eyre. night of the hunter for me is one of those unicorns that you talk about when you talk about movies that really don't have clear antecedents in terms of style mm-hmm. nor does it have that many clear um descendants in terms of the whole package there's it's the only movie that the actor charles lott never directed you know i, I, I know unfortunately it, it, unfortunately but it, it it was because it was so weird that people didn't really like it you know mm-hmm. it, it, it didn't succeed and it's, it's not really a date movie I, I can see why you know it didn't burn up the box office but there's <laughs> elements of like terrence malick in here there's all sorts of stuff, but when you place it in the Gothic tradition, you see all of a sudden now the Bluebeard, you know, uh, um, thing, and this idea of reading the Bluebeard mythology as 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 a hatred of women, you know, mm-hmm. you 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 call you call them misogynistic, and that's totally it. There's an amazing scene early on in the in the film where he's in a revival tent. Oh or, God, yes. Know, <laughs> and you know, before he's picked up, but before he goes in the revival tent to kind of atone, he's watching a stripper. Mm-hmm. And the 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 loathing that he has for the stripper, he has got to hide his hand in his pocket. I'm sure he's only putting his hand there, resting his hand in his pocket, not doing something else. But there's something really. <laughs> but there's that, yeah, that potential. Yeah, yeah oh, it's a nice my God, he there. hates women. He hates yes. their sexuality. He hates what how women make him feel. Mm-hmm. And the, the that's echoed later in you know the honeymoon sequence after he marries. The Shelley Winters character in, in the film, where she's offering herself to him, mm-hmm. and he rejects her and tells yes. her to pray. It's brutal. It's one of the most emotionally brutal scenes I've ever seen in a film. Yeah, because it, because Shelley Winters is so good at being hurt in movies. She is. And That's kind of her primary function there for a she's while. She's like the Kim Basinger yes. of the fifties, you know. And there's something really, um, you're heartbroken for her. You think she's kind of silly. You know she's making a bad choice here. You know she's not as good a mother as she should be. She's not protected. You know yeah. all of that, but you feel so bad for her at that moment. And then the the, the very next scene, you see her, you know, uh, sleeping with the fishes. There's a real viciousness about Night of the Hunter. I think that would catch audiences even today off guard. Yeah. Um, and to have the kids as the central sort of, uh, 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 you know, heroes of of this is an interesting twist. So. Gothic usually will have, of course, the woman as the hero. The ultimate woman hero, though, is the uh, old lady, which is also a twist, right? Yeah. The uh, Lillian Gish character. But, you know, I think there's still a monstrous old lady in this because of the uh, townswoman, you know, the woman who's yep. really religious and loves the thing. You know, and I'm not trying to, like, make it fit every groove, you know, but no, it is no. fascinating how many, how these films do fit so many of those grooves. But, um, yeah, again, like with Rochester, he doesn't care about the kids there's like sort of this sort of a denial of children or whatever and, 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 and hatred of them. Um, you know, the, the mother, she's not as attentive to the children as she needs to be. Right. And, and so there's that peril, that kind of archetypal peril that you're in. One of my recurring nightmares as a kid is uh, trying to get my parents' attention and them not, not hearing me, you know, not only nightmares as I was sleeping with nightmares in real life, the people that you need the most are not there for you when they're, yes. you need them to be. And the film opens with a bunch of kids discovering the body of, a, of another mother. Yep. Uh, and so there's stuff happening immediately. That's destabilizing 
to our culture. And that, you know, of course, laps over into the innocence as well. But you go, tell me about your experience with Night of the Hunter. I think you just summarized it perfectly. It's another one of those that taps into the not believing somebody instead of a woman. This time we have children for the exact reasons you were pointing out of how scary it is. Also, children have um, a more urgent um, relationship to good and evil. I think just like they say, women have intuition, kids do too. They, they come at things with an open heart and they want to love, like you see that in the younger girl here, but in this one, um, you know, they do get a vibe right away or the older one, especially on um, Mitchum's character. I love, it's also for an actor who was so good at bringing words to life and just conveying and capturing characters. It's one of the great filmmaking, especially filmmaking debuts that truly tells the story in pictures. I mean, those images of Mitchum with the love and the hate on his knuckles, of course, that you were bringing up before, but also the way that when he walks into town and he leans on a fence as the kid is telling uh, his sister this story, like we see his um, shadow on the wall and it's larger than life. The image of like Lillian Gish on a rocking chair with the gun. Um, Lawton just knows how to play those scenes perfectly. I think some actors would want to do too much with their character or want to reveal too many things. And he knows um, the simplicity. When I was talking last week with James Urbaniak, he was bringing up um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame and how there's this really moving moment where he's uh, his character's crying and how basically Lawton only had to play like part of his mouth and one eye. And yet it's the most wrenching thing ever when Maureen O'Hara gives him a little bit of water and he doesn't make a meal of it. It's just basically his eye, one eye and part of his lip. And this is kind of the film version of that, of using less is more. But I mean, it is a perfect Victorian Gothic. You're always making these jokes on Twitter kind of about like, well, what did you expect would happen when this you know, country was founded by these Puritans or that kind of thing. And this is sort of the film that brings that tweet to life. Uh, when I was watching that, I was like, ooh, Walter, perfect. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing about Lawton that's interesting to me too is like, you know, he he was gay and mm -hmm. there's bisexual, a group, he, yeah. Yeah, bisexual, sorry. And he was married to Elsa Lancaster, who um there, there, there's a story once where she walks in on him and yes the middle of mm -hmm. it with a, with a young actor you know the story it's really great he says something like you know and they're all horrified or whatever but you know you know Elsa, uh, um, Elsa says Charles I don't care what you do but you're buying me a new sofa uh, yes I love yeah. that anyway so there's of course you know this cultural bias against him and there's things that he's got to work through and these prejudices and whatever and I see that in Hunchback of Notre Dame with the sort of like his absolute empathy for that character, you know, yeah. his absolute empathy for being an outsider and not being, but being kind of mortified for what he wants, what he desires. And, but then you see him as a director here, hypercritical and revolted by religion. Mm -hmm. That's practiced by certain people, not everybody. Of course, you know, the hero of the film is Lillian Gish, you know, the very religious, you know, Grandma Moses kind of character. Like it's something that I think 
uh, Stephen King borrows for the the stand with you know the the uh, the, the the hero yeah. of that book. And Cronenberg likes to do it too, like these people who maybe aren't super religious but use it as yeah as kind of uh, a mythos. Yep. Right, right, like a true true spirituality yeah. held up against sort of this faux spirituality, this popular mm-hmm. spirituality, this mob spirituality that we're kind of always have been at the at at, at the mercy of in this country. Yes. And you know we have a bunch of religious fanatics that weren't welcome in any, any other country that landed here, and you know had the good fortune of murdering everybody so that they could stay. So there's this thing where it's like the the townspeople who rally behind a good godly man, and yeah, <laughs> you should marry him. He really loves God. He's really he's a preacher, man. And you know the police were buying in the beginning, right? When you know he says, you know he he corrects them, is like. Mr. You know, no preacher, like, yeah, okay, you're also a felon. And so there's like this, <laughs> the, 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 there's this real kind of revulsion uh, for not just the, the psychopath, of course, but almost more for the people who don't see through it, who don't yep. get it, who are so blinded by their faith. You know, that honeymoon sequence I was talking about happens in this really beautifully framed um cathedral like room like their 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 nuptial wedding night bedroom looks like a cathedral it's got like a crucifix and there's this little, that's the main thing and she's wearing this white shift and everything it's all very ken russell in, up in there and there's something vile about him Harry, you know Harry is his name harry wanting to pray and yes. forcing people to pray, you know, and I feel the same sense of revulsion whenever I see some of these, you know, these vile Republican senators wanting us to pray or look to God or saying all these things, all these words of faith and grace coming out of these lizard people. And none of the hunter gets it essentially, mm-hmm. essentially what these organized religions do to our society, but due to women in particular, you know, having her in one of the most haunting sequences and images in film still, you know, all these hyperboles, but after, after hundreds and dozens, dozens and dozens and hundreds, maybe even a thousand or so horror movies that I've seen since night of the hunter, I still remember the body in night of the hunter underwater. It's like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Anyway, but it's, it's because of the weight of the rest of the film. It's because of the weight of all of that, sexual perversity, religious perversity, religious hypocrisy, this oppressive feeling of a culture that's gone wrong for the children that can, the, that can afford it the least. I mean, the dad, Peter Graves, uh, you know, uh, the, the dad does what he does for a little bit of money. It's all this sort mm-hmm. of like disgusting. It's, it's Americana on the one hand, but on every hand, I guess it's Americana in its worst elements and its best elements. Um, you know, you, you do find good religious people. You do find good yeah. people who don't care about, you know, he gives her an apple. He goes, oh, nothing's more nourishing for the body than an apple. You know, what a yeah. beautiful Christmas movie, Night of the Hunter is. And so um, there's good. There's good. But there's mm-hmm. also this overwhelming evil that, that we have to be on guard for. And do we have enough guardians at the gate anymore to keep those guys out? I'm not sure. Yeah, and I like that you keep coming back to the honeymoon sequence because when you were bringing up Elsa Lanchester, when I was doing some reading about um, 
lot and she was talking about she didn't really know that side of him like um their honeymoon like she said oh you know we were sexually happy and everything and then she did uh have that moment where she came home or he was getting blackmailed i think also by another man or he'd been arrested or something and so he you know he had to tell her what was going on that he um was attracted to men or had these flings and it's also just um, how you approach something with an open heart, kind of like uh, what you were saying, good and evil. There's the judge, the judgmental people, and then there's the open heart. And you were bringing up the archetypes of the apple at the end and how beautiful that is. It's like, yep, you have the Adam and the Eve and the apple, but the apple used for good. And it's just um, somebody who looks at these children who screw up or things have happened in their lives, but sees them with love. A little bit of, um, I mean, corporeal uh, punishment there. She smacks those kids. It's a little questionable, but you're watching it and you get what she's doing. And yeah, it's a nice balance of this man of God, quote unquote, versus this woman who, well, what does that mean? And applying it. And yeah, you can kind of see that with uh, Lawton and his relationship that spanned his whole life with uh you know his partner there uh elsa lanchester so that's beautiful yeah well the, there, there's a whole element of james 217 i think it is that talks about how faith is meaningless without word without Ooh. action okay without yeah. action so you know you you know the thoughts and prayers mean nothing if you're not actually pa- passing legislation Perfect. but harry as a as a preacher means nothing if you're not actually acting as it as as mm-hmm. the uh you know old lady is and you know f- final thought I have about that um, about the apple and stuff and the symbolism of that is that the gift that you know the the, the boy gets in return is a watch and it's the finest watch I've ever had he says you know yes you know I, and, and it's like it's a heartwarming thing but it's also this idea that the apple gave Adam and Eve knowledge of good and evil and these children are inevitably as we see with the older girl who's going to town sometimes the, the children are inevitably going to discover sex they're going to oh, yeah. know they're going to gain knowledge of good and evil and the apple mm-hmm. sort of predicts it. So, so, so does the clock clock. So the ending of night of the hunter for me is really the sort of bittersweet ending where you say all of these sweet children and the, 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 the world's hard on little things and all these things is, is not, is this knowledge that this, the, this wonderful woman has that these children are entering into a fallen world. And it's mm-hmm. only a matter of time before they become that time is ticking. And there's only a very brief period of time where they're innocent Um, until, and this intrusion of the, of the world is, is relentless and always victorious. You can never keep kids away from that. And that's actually the foundation of this, of our next film, the innocence where a woman does her level best to prevent two children from ever becoming experienced. Um, And I, I guess arguably she succeeds. Yeah. (laughs) no it's perfect because you are going to experience evil and it's what you do with that and growing up is just a natural progression of life and that brings us to the innocence which was the first time for me seeing this film it was like in my collection i had the criterion so this was the push i needed and oh my god walter i loved it just one of the most beautiful haunting I mean, it's got that great gothic uh, sexual repression and perversity and what the hell's going on. And as soon as she gets out there and meets the children, um, you know, she's hearing voices that might not be there. It's 
brilliant, brilliant film. So I want to thank you for recommending that one. That's the new one for me. Well, as, as you know, because you've done this a lot for others and for me as well, one of the greatest joys of being a huge movie dork is uh, being able to introduce other people to your favorite movies and and, and sort of experience a new through them um uh what it's like to watch it for the first time the, like you know having kids that's one of the great things about having kids one of many but is that you get to watch your favorite movies with them you kind of indoctrinate them with your tastes for, for the first <laughs> time. but you know i watched uh the john carpenter's the thing with my kids for their first time during the uh the the very beginning of the quarantine when we were all at home and oh, it's wow. the perfect quarantine film it but is that, that scene with the blood test and the thing where everybody jumps, I still jump after having seen it 30 times. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I turned my camera phone on sneakily and I just, in the dark, I just sort of turned it towards them. So I have that moment immortalized for us forever of uh, the two of them losing their minds when they see that for the first time. And there's so much joy uh, in doing that. And I'm so excited with someone who's seen as many movies and knows as much about film as you do, I'm so excited to be able to introduce something to you, especially something like The Innocence, which, come on, how good, <laughs> how good is The Innocence? You know, so, it's amazing. And what else is great is you brought up The Uninvited, and that was another one that had always been in the back of my mind, like, I need to see it. I don't know what it is. Like, um, I guess British film. I'm, I kind of grew up a Francophile and the American movies, of course, I know very well. And uh, but there's something about UK movies. I'm still sort of filling gaps um, and UK actors. So the Charles Lawton thing that I did in the 30s was perfect for this. And so The Innocence, The Uninvited was another one. We were almost going to work it in, you know, but then I was going to have Walter here a week and he wouldn't get any sleep and it was going to be a nightmare. <laughs> yes. And, um, but, oh my God, I love these great, like haunted movies. Um, again, you have just this gorgeous scenery uh, in The Innocence. Is it, was it John Bailey shot this one? Gosh, I don't know. That's a great question. It yeah. is. It's John it's Bailey. Bailey. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, it's just stunning. The uninvited, no. some of the special effects work for the time period is just yes. magical. It's also great because it's playing with um, these issues of repression. Like she gets the job from the Michael Redgrave character at the beginning of the movie and they pray right away. And uh, so, yeah, kind of going back to well, and, and she's clearly hot for Michael Redgrave. I she's know. Clearly hot for yes. Him. And she brings him up later and stuff. And, and you know, the housekeeper yeah. that's there already brings him up, too. So, like, you know, just, just these little sly little comments about how worldly yes. um, he is. And, you know, certainly a man like him has never wanted <laughs> for company. And, you yeah. know, he's, he's a player, as they say, and enough so that he's not at all interested in the kids. He's this guy. He's this. Uh, he's this Rochester guy. You know, he's the like this anti Rochester. Guy who, yeah. yeah, he is. And yeah, he is like so hot for him, and she's so repressed. Yeah, she's so like sexually terrified. All oh my time. gosh, I know. You know. And and the the weirdness of her relationship with um the the little boy Martin. Is, yeah. is it Miles? Oh, Miles, it's so strange. Yeah. Oh my gosh! And there's that scene where Miles kisses her on the lips. Ooh. You know, in, in, in the innocence. Oh my god! And you're like, mm -hmm. 
what the hell is happening? Or and it's set up really at the very beginning too with the little girl Pamela Franklin as Flora, who says, "Oh, what what a beautiful spider!" and is eating that butterfly. You know what I mean? It's like yes, yeah. (laughs) Everything is wrong here, and and you get the feeling from the sound design, from the way the movie looks, from all the stuff that. She after she gets really titillated in the office of the, you know, of Michael Redgrave and everything. Everything after that is sort of this fever dream of of like you know repressed sexuality, right? Yeah, everything's in this like, hot you know, lens now. Yes, of, of yes, hate, basically, yeah. It, 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 it's like it's like it's a movie like Splinter in the Grass, where you'd have a five minute short if they just slept with each other. Yep. If they just fucked, nothing would happen. No, it's like that everything's fine, but that they don't. Now mm-hmm. it's a horror movie. It you is know? and, and her yes. inability to do it and to you know you you sense for her whole life. If she's mm-hmm. had sex, it's it's bad sex. You know, yep. if Miss Giddens ever got laid, it's the wrong kind of sex. It <laughs> it's the weird, like, <laughs> with the Robert Mitchum character of we need to pray and, like, I can't look oh, at you and throw a sheet gross. over you. Like, you just know it's yes. bad. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She was broken further by her experience rather than liberated, right? Yeah. And we presume that Miss Jessel, her uh, predecessor at, mm-hmm. at, at the estate, was sexually liberal she's sleeping with quint the groundskeeper she Mm -hmm. is uh cool with it she's a lady she's got her needs you know everything is she's fine and that's at the antithesis of what miss giddens can allow in her world and her horror of sexuality her own sexuality leads her to try to you know oppress the children and Mm -hmm. and and give that same sort of like brokenness to the kids to say you know, be afraid of sex. Be afraid of this loss of innocence that we talked about with, you know, the end of Night of the Hunter and the, you know, the great thing about the the uh, Lillian Gist character, Miss Cooper, and, and Night of the Hunter is that she accepts it. She's mm-hmm. like, here's an apple, here's a clock. These symbols aren't subtle. You're gonna grow up. You're gonna yeah. start looking around town just like you know my, you know, Ruby, l- yeah. yeah, just like poor Ruby going to town. You know, getting mm-hmm. sucked in with the uh, the with Harry as well. You know. This is going to happen to each one of these little kids. Yeah. About them getting like plucked out and murdered by some crazy preacher. She's talking about just the world, just the ugly influence of puberty Mm -hmm. is going to kill children. You know, I've I've always been struck with a sort of poetic idea of like, you know, we, the children we were are murdered by the adults that we are. And it, it's like that there, there, there's something compelling about that when it is expressed in the Gothic. Yeah. As it is here, sort of these unsuccessful transferences sometimes. And you have like, you know, Deborah Carr, who herself, you know, this Miss Giddens character is a bit of a child in, in the way that she sees things and understands things. Mm-hmm. And she plays hide and go seek. She, you know, uh, sings with them. She dances with them. She's childlike, very much like Jane Eyre briefly is sort of childlike with her charge. And yeah. um, in Wuthering Heights, there's a there's a sense of arrested sexuality with them, mm-hmm. and um, it, it proves to be fatal. Spoiler alert! In the innocence, but you know, even as you were giving the introduction to this part of uh, our chat today, is like the dead giveaway is that it's written by Truman Capote. Yeah, you know, it's like wait a minute, Truman Capote is not exactly sort of the standard bearer for Ward Cleaver kind of sex, no. right? <laughs> Truman Capote is in there like breaking shit up all left and right in our culture yeah. and he no less so the innocence um and he said i think that 90 percent of the script that he wrote was filmed 
He, he mm. feels like this is really faithful to his vision of it. And, you know, you, you pair that with Henry James, who, you know, my, my, my favorite thing that Henry James ever wrote is a short story called the beast in the jungle, which I'm sure you're familiar with. It's just actually sort of, that you know, one. I'm not. No. It, oh my God. It's you'll love it. It's right up okay. your alley. And it's like, uh, it's, it's beautiful. It's lush. And it ends with this sort of image of a man turning at the same time, like sort of this id creature in his mind, a beast in the jungle, a panther turns and pounces. And it's like, it's this idea of the sort of repressed sexuality breaking out of some primitive place in our imagination or uh, the id. It, it, that's what mm-hmm. all of these are talking about is this expression of the id. And um, you know, when Miss Giddens expresses her id and everything goes wrong, it's uh man, it's one of the great moments, I think, in 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 novels. And you know, you 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 talk about this being a blind spot for you, these British movies. There's so many blind spots that I have. It's mm-hmm. embarrassing and it's something that I keep trying to catch up, and you realize you never quite can. Oh, but no. what I love about you know British movies is like this is where the gothic begins. Yeah, and what's you great know, with Truman gothic... Capote is you have the Southern Gothic fused with the British here. It's perfect. That's such a great observation because, you know, British Gothic for me is always sort of chilly. Like, you know, the wind off the moors and the, you know, damp of the swamp. And, you know, that, that that's what, with, with when I was reading Wuthering Heights for the 10th time, I'm like, you know, everyone be, be okay if they just stopped running across the fucking moors in the middle of the night. <laughs> it's not good for your lungs. But you know, what Truman Capote brings in, you know, to your observation is this real sweatiness. Yes. You know, the, innocent, the innocence to me feels damp somehow. It is. I mean, right from the beginning when she gets there and you were talking about um, she's very childlike. And again, with doubling uh, the image of Deborah Carr showing up and then being almost doubled with Flora as they come like on a lily pad and the girl has a little frog and, you know, the older woman and the younger woman, the stuff with Miles is fascinating. I mean, there's a lot going on with psychology here. Um, you have Henry James and, of course, his brother, William James, with the psychology. So there's a lot underneath the surface that's barely under the surface, we should say. It's pretty obvious, like the butterfly and the spider and all of that. Um, but from the moment they start talking about Miles uh, needing to come home because he was kicked out of school, um, the language that they start using around him as maybe he could lead to injury or um, contamination, just the phrases that they use to describe him and what's possibly wrong with him uh, later kind of comes in with what did he see? Um, essentially he saw Quint and Miss Jessel, the previous woman, like having sex essentially and that language. And then when she first picks up miles with Flora, when he arrives, he says something kind of flirtatious to her about being too pretty or too young to be their governess. And she's like, Oh, you're a terrible flirt or something like that. So there's just something off about her reactions with this little boy or her fear with the boy. And again, it kind of, she's like a little girl at heart, but in the body of this woman. Yeah. Yes. And he's like a full grown man in the body of a little Mm -hmm. boy, you know, and, but just, you touch on this idea of original sin of contamination of sort of a blood contamination. And I love that. I love it because that's the same thing that we talk about with the apple imagery from night of the hunter, right? This idea of an essential, sin which was the desire for knowledge 
of sexuality. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first thing Adam and Eve do is put on clothes, right? Yeah. So that there's this this idea here that's embedded in the innocence of, of of like, you know, her her fear, Miss Giddens's fear is that is that Miles has been blood contaminated by the, mm-hmm. looking at something by like yep. taking that in. and you know what I love about this director about Jack Clayton who's sort of um, lost you know to to us for any number of reasons but he made a series of like really interesting movies right in this like three or four year period around the innocence he did a movie called room at the top which is fascinating but the pumpkin eater is a masterpiece our mother's house in 1967 is another masterpiece you know the the uh pumpkin eater was written by harold pinter um and it was adapted from a novel by penelope mortimer um and it's like it is a, a, a just this weird Again, another psychosexual drama mm-hmm. in London where Anne Bancroft, uh, in, and I think her best role ever, um, you know, falls in love with an emotionally distant husband played played by Peter Finch, and she's like she's got all these kids, and he resents them. You know, all of these things about the Gothic in a modern context. It's amazing. Oh, wow, Our Mother's yeah. House. I highly recommend it as okay. well. It is. Uh, uh, it's a movie. I think Spielberg at one point said like heavily influenced him in terms of how to portray uh, a, a really fraught do- domestic psychology. And um, that's what Clayton was great at. You know, he's most known in America probably for doing, if not the great Gatsby, you know, the, the Robert Redford one, something oh, yeah. wicked this way comes. <laughs> the adaptation yeah. of something wicked this way comes. And um, oh, yes. he has a much different and longer cut of it. That's been lost and everything. And that's what um, probably amazing. But uh, what's left is amazing. I mean, that's one of the movies that severely messed me up when I was a kid. Um, you know, just the beheaded stuff and Bradbury. Bradbury is not easy to translate, but Clayton does mm-hmm. it. Um, anyway, one of the great masters and the way that he films all of this essential corruption and he mirrors it with images of nature. You know, you, you get the question a lot um, when you talk about Night of the Hunters. Like, what movies compare with it visually? It's like, well, the easy way out is to say not none. But the truth is, some do. I mean, the innocence kind of does with yeah. the image of the frog, right? Or the beetle coming out of the statue's mouth, or mm-hmm. even the spider and the butterfly. These images of nature that are interspersed with this image of, you know, men returning to nature, this, uh, their essential nature, or their corrupt nature. And this idea that the first testament of God is maybe not the Bible, but nature and all of its mm-hmm. cruelties and sexuality and all of this, uh, uh, you know, nature doesn't care about you. You're just a piece of it. And there's something about the innocence that's about that too. Miss Giddens is the greatest champion of civilization that we could have. She she's beating back nature as much as she can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she can't. Yeah. Listening to you talk about all of these things and the sweatiness and the bog and the nature and the beetle and the frog, I was thinking also of um, is it chapter eight or episode eight, of course, of Twin Peaks, The Return and mm. what David Lynch does there with the children and coming of age and what the hell is going on. So, yeah, you could watch all of these together or yeah. see what how they inspire uh, one another. I know Scorsese loves this film. He just mm. recently um, was quoted in an article like his favorite scary movies ever. And this one and The Uninvited were in the same uh, collection of titles oh, and I thought boy that's perfect you know what did he hang out or eavesdrop on our conversation with Walter Chaw here no but yes it was perfect yeah oh and Uninvited is so great too because talk about another movie that's sort of 
sort of subtly wrong a little bit perverse. yeah like, playing house with your sister yeah, and wait then, a minute are they yeah. brother and sister do, yeah. do you know like <laughs> yeah. i think they mentioned it right at the very beginning but throughout the course of it you're like whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute what's going on Why? there yeah what's happening um and you know i love ray Milland so much he's such a so good great leading man he's so yeah. great so charming that's what makes him such a great murderer and dial him for murder you know yes. what i mean it's like you can't He's just so charming. There's Hitchcock again, right? Uh, understanding yep. the, the essential evil underlying charm. I think mm-hmm. Hitchcock really envied people who were charming in a way that he wasn't. You know, he told dirty jokes. He was seen as sort of a naughty guy, yeah. but he was always teased as sort of the fat kid. You know, it was like he, I think he really like had a love hate relationship with Cary Grant. He had a love hate relationship with Ray Milland, with a lot of us. He hated Rod Taylor. And he had a love-hate relationship with the handsome leading men. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and it's like he understood sort of or wanted to th- project a kind of evil calculation to uh, – but, you know, to, to, to find Raymond Land for Dial Up for Murder, you see a little bit of that displacement of his character in The Uninvited as well, you know, his insistence on being there, his insistence on buying it, his sort of breeziness with her initial his sister's initial concerns and stuff. And man, that's good. God, that's it good is good. <laughs> oh my gosh, and listening to you talk, yes, they, he had these gorgeous, um, very charismatic leading men, but he liked to bring out the ugly side or the dark side in all of them. Um, and even, of course, you have Cary Grant, who's one of the most beautiful men. Mm-hmm. And then you also have, I mean. Jimmy Stewart is very handsome, yeah. but he's also just one of the most charming individuals he's, you're ever going to. And yeah, he's and freaking was, Tom Hanks. Yes, he is Tom Hanks. And right? in um, Hitchcock's take on him, it's like, wow, ah, he's a little sinister. He's a little right. repressed. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if we had anybody that, that was, that, yeah. if we had anybody that was as courageous or as incisive as Hitchcock working now, we would have Tom Hanks in a series of villain roles as a wife, murderer, as whatever. <laughs> you know, we, we have him in Road to Perdition, but even in that, he's Which a good I dad. Yeah. I love it too, but he's still not completely heel, right? No. But, but then, you know, it, imagine Tom Hanks doing North by Northwest. That's fascinating. That really, because be. yes. there's something wrong with, with him too, with Thornhill. You know, he's not he's not quite moored to an identity and no. just like Harry Grant wasn't, he was a chameleon, you know, who he was personally, who he was in public, but, you know, imagine you know Tom Hanks playing a Norman Bates character, you know, Anthony Perkins was a teen idol, a tiger beat idol at the time, you know, the yes. sets were overrun by girls wanting to get a glimpse of him and yeah. cast him as this. So it's like, but the, the, there's a kind of like courage in, undermining and 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 undercutting things that we hold to be true about personalities that we worship or places or situations like you mm-hmm. know and, and the gothic does that too i love as beautiful as the state is you get the sense that the whole thing is in the state of decay like everything is falling apart everything is crumbling everything is kind yes. of gross it's only by the agency of like a staff of people that mm-hmm. this thing doesn't just get covered with mold and fall into, you know, be commanderly at the end of it, right? I mean, there's yeah. always, you get the sense of like a hive of bees or social insects keeping this unnaturally here. As soon as they're gone, it's going to be overgrown or sunken. You know, yes. it's only for a period of time that we exist here between, you know, nature and nature. It, you know, we just kind of carved out a moment. And then we're forgotten underneath of this whole like tide of, of, of corruption. And uh, man, the innocence just feels dirty uh, 
uh, from the first frame. I, I don't know it how does. to say that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's something really twisted going on under the surface. I thought it was interesting to watch it after um, I'd seen The Others from 2001 with yes. Michael Kidman, the um, Bar film. If you yes. haven't seen that and you're listening, you should be sure to check that out. It's another gothic, just beautiful looking film about a woman and there's kids and lots of twists. Um, but yeah, it was Nicole Kidman, cool. right? Yes, good old yes. Nicole Kidman. I love it when she plays against type. Yes, uh, when you're talking about, of course, the women of these movies, it is kind of cool to have, um, you know, Deborah Carr from like The King and I and stuff <laughs> as this uh governess, and uh-huh. um, just to see, uh, yeah, uh, she was in An Affair to Remember. She's just very sexually repressed in this one. And then, of course, you have in Night of the Hunter, you have Shelley Winters. And she was always kind of playing this voraciously sexually hungry woman uh, in these films, as in Lolita. So it's playing on their um, archetype and their character. And, yeah, I think it works really well in these. I, I absolutely adore Deborah Carr. I adore yeah. her. I think she has one of the most fascinating careers, largely because... She was, quote unquote, difficult. She got branded by the men that she worked with for being difficult because she didn't want to just be a studio contract player in any kind of role that they stuck her in. She really fought for some of the movies that she was in. But her early work with the Archers in particular um, is extraordinary. I mean, she plays three different roles in The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. Oh, yeah. Because, oh, my God, I love that movie so much. And it's just <laughs> about you know yearning and how men objectify or create an object choice in their mind of an idealized woman and chase it through the rest of their lives. You know, mm. it's, it's remarkably sad and beautiful. And she's also in black narcissus. I mean, one of my all time favorite films you're I'm sure you've seen black narcissus. Yeah. Years ago, but yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, for me, black narcissus and that's 1947, you know, it's all the way back around the time of our previous movies of, uh, of like the, of, of the Jane Eyre's and stuff. But uh, Black Narcissus, Narcissus for me is the birthplace of of Jala and the and the Italian um, uh, um, supernaturals that oh, Argento that's and Mario interesting. Bava. I like that. Yeah. yeah, I think it's the direct visual influence and thematic influence. It's the first evil nun movie ever, and the colors are unbelievable, and the sound design is unbelievable. And you know, Michael Powell was really heavily influenced by um jane Eyre, that that version of jane Eyre that we talked about mm-hmm. uh, he's mentioned it before in some of his work he's like you know i really care oh, for cool. a lot of these images so you know again we're talking about you know sort of interlacing of a lot of these these uh great movies with similar feeling themes but mm-hmm. uh, black narcissus again also is about repressed sexuality also is about yes you know i mean she's a nun you know but in that film there's a uh, another nun a sister nun at this uh remote uh, monastery who, who um, I, by, by Kathleen Byron, who goes kind of n- nutty. I mean, she gets really oversexed. She puts on this shocking red lipstick. She goes, mad, <laughs> you know, and she tries to throw somebody off of a cliff. And it's like, man, it's so lonesome feeling. It's, it's extraordinary. It's beautiful. And, you know, there's a direct lineage from that film all the way up, you know, 13 years later to the innocence, 14 years later to the innocence. Um, God, the innocence is good. It, it, it it's is. so exciting to talk about these movies, right, with you because it, it kind of fires off all of these things. You're like, well, remember the others? Like, yeah, or remember Malignant? You know, it fires off all of these uh, um, um, 
connections is almost like synapses like uh growing or grooves growing in your brain as you're talking about these movies because yeah. you realize that the themes that they're talking about are essential archetypal themes you can go back mm-hmm. to Medea, you know and a- 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 ancient greece or you know some old chinese stories or, or mesopotamian there it's all here it's mm-hmm. all here the fears that women have the fears of women have about men wanting to control them the fear that men have yeah. about women's sexuality all of these stories carry through the gothic carry through to the modern day where you least expect it where you least yep. expect it you know, heavenly creatures or power of the dog or malignant, you know, all of these are part of this gothic tradition. Um, and the more that you watch these movies, the more that you watch the uninvited or innocence or that of the hunter, the more you realize, okay, there's a whole lineage. There's a whole yes. area of scholarship that I have to dive or I could dive into that will only enrich my um, experience of all of this other stuff. Yeah, we always like to think that we're discovering an idea or a theme of like, you know, as they just joked on uh, Succession, fuck the patriarchy or or (laughs) whatever is going on. Yeah, like, you know, that we're the first generation to have these thoughts. And it's like, no, look back and then look back at the source novels. And yes, you could definitely be here. And I mean, Uh, I mean, 1789, they were pulling the patriarchy out of the castles and putting them on guillotines. I mean, there's like there's a precedent for all of the stuff. Right. And Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's one of the great joys, I think, of art for, for people like you, for people like me, if I could be so bold, is like this feeling like there's, it would be so lonely if we were the first people to ever come up with it. I ideas. know, right? <laughs> it would be terrible. Like, how it could would. nobody have thought of this already? But you yeah. can pick up a text from 1471 and you can say, oh, <laughs> all right. You know, when, yes. when I read John Keats, I'm like, how did this tubercular 23-year-old from 150 years ago know exactly how I feel about my wife? Oh. How is that even possible? <laughs> yeah. You know? And then suddenly you feel less weird, less alone. Yeah. And we talked have. about Bright Star the last time we were together. See these yes. go circles. Yeah. <laughs> Look at you, right. Walter. You're bringing it back. Well, and the thing about romanticism is, too, is that's where Sigmund Freud got his idea about the structure of the unconscious. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, the unconscious wouldn't exist without the romanticists. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, th- there's all of this stuff. And Freud writes really well about the Gothic tradition and this, I, his idea of the uncanny, the umheimlich, you know, and he talks about doubling and he talks about the return of the press and talks about all of these issues that we talked about a little bit today that are raised by the Gothic. But Freud uses it to explain a certain kind of essential mania. And then Jung runs with that. And then we have um, these stories that evolve from it have always evolved and have are now reconstituted over and over and over again, particularly in our genre film. But yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, when, when we decided on this, it really marries our, what we really love, I think is mm-hmm. films noir and, and horror. And I love horror films. I know you do too. We, we both love films noir to combine them together you get this kind of woman's picture, the gothic yeah. picture. Yep. And um, it's like, man, Perfect. you know, the <laughs> way that this speaks for uh, minorities, that speaks for women, it's like, and, and you know, the long, long answer, the two-hour-long answer to the question that you asked very at the very beginning, why the gothic tradition? I think finally it's this, is like, even though it's about, usually about women, usually about white women, privileged white women in a castle, mm-hmm. um, when I watch it, I identify with them immediately because yeah. i understand what it's like to be a minority i understand what it's like to not to be listened to to be thought of t- to be something else because of how you what you look like um to be diminished for what you look like for who you are and what you came from i mean this speaks 
directly to the concerns of a minority population and it really um, does yeah yeah Yeah, whatever background you have you're gonna see yourself in it for sure and 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 you so eloquently expressed these movies through a disability lens yeah as well as as a as a woman's lens and it's like that's amazing that this these movies can be uh, cathartic and instructive for the majority population, if you will, about all of these issues. Yep, all of these issues. It's extraordinary. Yeah, you can, building blocks of storytelling. Yeah, it's um, just humbling. And, it and is. Amazing. Yeah, and you talked about Freud. Megan Abbott is one of my favorite writers working today, and she always credits Freud as being like her building block or somebody mm-hmm. she looks to for her stories. If you haven't read The Turnout, anyone listening, do check it out because there's a whole lot of Freud, very gothic stuff going on in that one. She pulls from everything from like Flowers in the Attic to like Tennessee Williams. It's it's great. It's uh, a very I love erotic work. She is incredible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's wonderful. She's, so, did you know, um, Jan, that there's a prequel to The Innocents? I did not. Oh no. Yep, it came out in 1971. It's directed by Michael Winner. Okay. <laughs> the ironically named Michael Winner. I don't know. That's not. That's not very nice. Um, and it stars Uh-oh. Marlon Brando as Quint. No way. What is this? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Uh, so Mel, Marlon Brando plays Quint, the uh, the uh, layabout, overly randy uh, groundskeeper for a large mansion uh, that okay. we introduced to in the Innocence. And uh, Stephanie Beecham plays Miss Jessel, and it's all about the lead up to it. And we have you Ooh. know two little kids, and there's actually a scene of S and M bondage involving a child. Oh my um, god! It is uh wow, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> um, I, I will say it's a lot. That it is, okay. Uh, yeah, I will say that it's not good. It's not. Um, I, I will go what so far as to say it is not good, but it's very interesting. It's very interesting. And oh, sorry, it's called the the Nightcomers. Okay, the Nightcomers. Ooh, <laughs> what a terrible title! I can't. It is. It. Yeah, it sounds so bad when I say it like out loud. People of the night. Yeah, I think might be nightcomers. Well, you wish that's oh, what it meant. Dirty, I'm not sure that yeah, is yeah. what it meant. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's uh yeah wow it's a it's a big mess it's a big, it's a messy, big mess. messy movie Woo. but you, you know, know if the, you're going for a deep dive you got to check it out I tell guess. you what yeah if you're yeah. a completionist uh that's where you go the nightcomers from 1971 weird <laughs> movie and if you know anything about michael winner i mean he's a weird filmmaker he made the mechanic with ronson which i really love and death oh, wish yeah, yeah stonekiller yeah know. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, he did this weird, weird, weird ass movie with Marlon Brando called The Nightcomers, which is the prequel to The Innocent. Okay. Wow. Well, I know we wanted to discuss like three times as many movies with this topic. <laughs> we referenced, we recommended so many others. But for anyone listening, are there any other gothic sleepers or favorites you think people should check out besides, of course, The Nightcomers? Oh man. Well, I, I, I'm not exactly recommending nightcomers, but yeah. if you yeah. choose to see it, see it, I would really <laughs> recommend um, the seventh victim, which I, I know. Oh, that yes, I, I, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I had you watch and then you were like, can you do something maybe a little less horrible than this? Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> it was, I think during a, a 
just depressing ass oh, time during the totally. pandemic and we were like maybe we're gonna push that off but yeah. we'll come back for a loop like, episode i, I yeah. already kind of am having some bad thoughts so maybe let's not get completely there <laughs> yeah but you know the the the, the seventh victim starring kim hunter uh, it's done during val luton's run yeah you remember val luton the sort of uh, go-getter guy for david selznick who eventually became the head of rko's horror division and while he was there i think he made 10 horror movies 10 or 11 horror movies and each one of them has merit and value you know for the purposes of gothic romance so i walked with a zombie produced by luton during that period directed by jacques turner uh seventh victim i think that was a mark robson uh, uh film um I really recommend cat people which is another mm-hmm. kind of gothic romance Curse of the Cat People is my favorite uh, Val, okay. Val Luton produced film. It's uh, the, the direct sequel to Cat People, but it's told as a little girl's uh, fairy tale fantasy of living kind of in a fairyland with an imaginary best friend who happens to be the uh, ghost of her dead aunt. Um, and it's Ooh. it's it's uh, beautiful, and it's it really it heavily influenced Marnie. Uh, uh, um, uh, Hitchcock's Marnie. When you dive into these early 40s gothics, you really see where Hitchcock's later American films came from. Um, But yeah, really dig into Val Luton. Highly recommend those. Val Val Luton was born, you know, he was uh, um, from from Ukraine. He was born on the Black Sea. He told a lot of uh, fairy tale myth through his stuff. A great movie called Bedlam. He he produced or Isle of the Dead as well. Really remarkable things that he did uh, with the horror genre on a shoestring. That's a whole nother podcast, Jen. But you know that was already done by the Secret History of Hollywood. Oh my God! If you've not listened to that, it's amazing. The Val Luton story. I think they're making it into a movie now. That that, oh, that, cool. that podcast string, but. Yeah, listen to that. Watch all of Val Luton films. Um, there's a movie called Queen of Spades that's directed by Thorold Dickerson. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Dickinson for, in 1949. And um, Anton Walbrook from The Red Shoes. Again, he plays uh, a gambler in Napoleon's army who wants, uh, he make, makes a deal with the devil by killing a woman who's also made a deal with the devil and taking her deal uh, to be really good at Pharaoh, the card game. And the images and the performances and the sort of sense of doom is uh, great. It's so great. There's so many good movies from this period. Um, I think you'd be better at throwing out titles than I would. Uh, But uh, my gosh, there's good stuff here. And anything starring Joan Fontaine's sister, Olivia de Havilland. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, Especially uh, The Snake Pit. I think that's Mm -hmm. like 48. Uh, the movie for which De Havilland won an Oscar, she is uh, put into an insane asylum for being a difficult woman. And there's a scene of one of her hallucinations while she's in there of literally her being in sort of a Bosch painting. Uh, crazy, crazy oh, wow. ass stuff. And it's so great. Um, I, I think, you know, the the granddaddy of some of this stuff is maybe Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, where you get like a, the unreliable oh, German expressionism, yeah, exactly. Yeah. With the German expressionism and the, but you know, even in the modern day, right? If you look at some of Tim Burton's movies, like Sleepy Hollow and stuff, it has elements of the Gothic. Um, when you go into Such there, a gorgeous uh, film too. Yeah. Oh my god, I love Sleepy Hollow. And I know. One Edward Scissorhands, beautiful Gothic romance. Yep. Edward Scissorhands. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's like there's a Batman Returns as a Gothic romance. It is. There's yeah. There's so much there. There. Uh, it's it's so beautiful to unpack, but anything by Jane Campion as well, I think falls into this gothic romance thing. There's no yeah. there's no greater poet of cinema working right now than, than Jane Campion. She really hears it 
Mm-hmm. Here's the music. Um, Holy Smoke does some Holy interesting smoke. things. Oh my yes. god, it does. <laughs> it does. Yeah, Harvey Keitel. Kate yes, Winslet. my goodness, um, playing with gender roles and sexuality. Oh Jesus, it's yes. so fucking good. And so you know, good. in 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 the cut is one of well, oh, one yeah. of the great masterpieces that mm-hmm. has been completely overlooked unfairly, I think, yeah. of the modern time. Um, under the skin, in a weird way, is kind of a gothic romance. I think you know where she she is the beast. Uh, oh, the uh, live-action Beauty and the Beast, uh, Belle Labette, the uh, Jean, Jean Cocteau. Mm, um, yes, it is. Oh my God, it's good. And all his bo- his movies, he's only done a few. Yeah, um, Blood of a Poet. Um, those are, yeah. I've I've gone on. I'm sorry. No, yeah, there's, I, this the, is wonderful. I'm gonna the genre is everyone to like listen with a notebook <laughs> and pen and uh also just try to track these down hopefully boutique labels are listening and they're going to put out all these movies now i oh, should man. say just for the record that i had to track down i mean i've seen it a lot but the original um the jane Eyre that we discussed mm. i actually had to buy the uh blu-ray was from spain 100 bucks so, what? 120 bucks the Twilight Time, I think, for that oh, junior. Really? Oh, really? It's crazy. So funny. Yeah, crazy. so my um Blu-ray I'm holding it up for Walter is Alma Rebelde. Is oh. Yes, I know. It came <laughs> uh Adaptation. I mean, I'm not going to read it. It's embarrassing because my Spanish <laughs> yeah. is very poor. But, um, you know, you get to the main menu, you know, idiomas is language. I mean, you can put it in English. It's great. But yeah, so you do have to maybe buy this from a, a, a different country. But, you know, these are available. So anyone listening, any um, other companies put these movies out, put all the ones out that Walter mentioned. Uh, well, and, yeah. and, and Orson Welles says, you know, we should yes. talk about his career as an actor. We talk about him as a director all the time, but he acted yeah. and directed and uh, the stranger, which is extraordinary. Yes. Uh, also lady from Shanghai, which is just Ooh. extraordinary, more yeah. of a great noir, but a psychedelic noir, as you would say, or a surreal noir. Then. Yes. Um, his Macbeth is extraordinarily Gothic and uh, um, amazing. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, his trial adaptation of the Kafka. Oh boy. Yes. You know, there's like, there's some deep stuff and he did a movie about a magician as well. Uh, not Mr. Arcaden, but it's, I think it's just called the magician. Um, but uh, yeah, it's Was it Ar- Mr. Arcadian. Is that the one or? Yeah. Well, I think it's not. It, it's not. Oh, okay. No, maybe it is. I get them all confused. There's like, I know. Also for fic- Anyway. It's worth it oh, to dive deep into Orson Welles. That's yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's worth it to to dive into um, Orson Welles. You know, when we're talking yeah. about these like gothic things, because he loved that stuff. He loved that. He loved the idea of uh, the, the the grand gesture was something that he was fond of. So, mm-hmm. yeah, recommend those. Perfect. Well, Walter, I want to thank you so much for your time and your knowledge. I learn every time I talk to you. So this is wonderful. And just what a pleasure. Thanks again for doing this. Well, it's it's entirely my honor. And I'm uh, surprised every time you ask. Uh, but I'm always grateful that you do. So yes, thanks for asking me. Uh, it's, real, it's always fun. I always learn too when I talk with you. It's great too throw ideas back and forth it's one of the real joys you know about uh, watching great art yeah 100 percent. and don't worry everyone listening walter's definitely coming back so yes (laughs) thank you
I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.